0: You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today.
1: This is 2022, right? 2022. Years ago there was not a discipleship Bible school. Um, before that, there was DTS, SBS, and other secondary schools, but not, no secondary schools that try to try to focus in on the Bible the way we're doing. Now, the SBS, have any of you considered the SBS someday? Mm -hmm. Okay. How long does that take? Nine months. It's a nine month commitment. Wow. Okay. Now, there was a time when there was no SBS, there was DTS and then some specialty evangelism, worship, outreach, schools. Back in the 1970s, um, different bases would invite seminary professors and well-known pastors to come and speak. Uh, one of the well-known pastors was Dr. Skidmore, who pastored St. Giles Presbyterian Church just a few miles from here. And he was invited all over the world to, to teach Bible. And he, he was a superb Bible teacher. Uh, he, he passed away a few years ago. Um, he was probably 30 years older than me. But a, a extremely educated and passionate pastor teacher after some teaching in Switzerland um, the Cunninghams asked Skidmore if he would uh, join with YWAM full-time because he was pastoring full-time but he would take a couple months every summer and go teach at different bases and they asked him if he would be willing to leave his church and join YWAM full-time and put together some kind of school that would give an opportunity, you know, like, you know, something for eight or nine months. And so it was the idea of having a school of biblical studies back in the 1970s. And um, Dr. Skidmore prayed about it. He said, I, I, Right now, I, I can't do that. But you've got a man in one of your DTS schools right now who graduated from Gordon Conwell Seminary, he got his master's degree, joined YWAM. He's almost finished with the DTS that he's doing. And he would be a perfect candidate to take his seminary studies and condense it into, you know, an eight or nine month format. Do you know who the guy's name was? Who gets the credit for developing SBS? I'm thinking of Ron Smith. Okay, so Ron Smith uh, had been pastored by Dr. Skidmore here and uh, had been a student of Gordon Fee. Who's one of my professors, uh, Gordon Fee also used to travel. Uh, he taught in Switzerland and in Hawaii and in other bases around Europe. And so before there was an SBS, there were just invitations to Bible scholars and teachers to go around teaching, and they would teach a book at a time. Now, when Skidmore, Dr. Skidmore or Dr. Fee would teach, they would choose one book, and they would do a deep dive. They would spend two weeks on 1 Corinthians, or Romans, and just, that that was it, one book of the Bible, and go deep, do a verse-by-verse, sometimes word-by-word study, and, um, (laughs) (laughs) and there is a place for that, but it takes years to do that, if you're going to go through all the books of the Bible, and those of us who went to seminary, we spent several years to go through most of the books of the Bible, and we did it in classes that did go often word by word, verse by verse. I took one graduate course on the sermon, sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is three chapters, right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It was a graduate-level course on three chapters of the Bible. It was awesome. <laughs> but that's all we did, three chapters. But we took every word in those three chapters, and we did a deep, deep dive. I mean, deep scuba diving. I mean, we, we, we took apart every... But, but that's not the goal of either the School of Biblical Studies or the Discipleship Bible School. The objective here is to get you through the Bible in 12 weeks. You won't learn everything. You won't do a deep dive on much. We'll occasionally focus on one thing, but it's sort of like a helicopter flying over. Okay, don't blink. Look, there's, okay, there's Job, don't blink. Okay, there's Genesis. Okay, good stuff, good stuff, good stuff. Okay, move on to Exodus, and, and you're gonna feel sometimes like the helicopter's moving a bit fast because you can't get the whole lay of the land. Within a seminary course, we would do deep research. We would do linguistic study. We would do archeological study, the historical background, the cultural background. We would do deductive Bible study, a deep study of research. To get through the Bible in 12 weeks, you have to do inductive Bible study. The the IBS is the pattern that YWAM has embraced. And YWAM didn't develop IBS. It's been around for a long time. but, But YWAM said, that's perfect. That's a perfect approach. It's the right attitude to have in 12 weeks. That we will pray as we get into the Bible. We will observe what it says on the page. We will interpret what it says on the page and then apply it to our lives. Get in, get out. Now, when your 12 weeks are over, you are welcome to go much deeper. I beg you, go much deeper. I invite you, go much deeper. I'll tease you to go much deeper. Any way I can. But inductive Bible study is intended to have those four simple steps. Now, there's some sub-steps. There's... uh, always come with an attitude of prayer you start with the attitude of prayer and I say that because it's easy to get caught up in study and forget I'm studying God's revealed truth it's easy and I speak that personally I have been convicted so many times where I approach the book as ancient story history cool stuff and lose sight that it's truth revealed by God that transforms people and I need to be a messenger of that So prayer, that doesn't mean you have to pray an hour every time you go into Bible study, but have an attitude of prayer. Lord, open my eyes, my heart, lead me, help me to have a correct understanding and to stay within the path, and then observe what's there. Now, within the IBS, we want you to know that very often with observation, you should be aware of the historical background of each book of the Bible, and that's the assignment that every instructor you have for the for, for the next 12 weeks all of us have been given the assignment of give the context give the, the 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 historical background and some cultural information and when necessary some literary background but absolutely the historical background so within step 2 is that sub step of make sure you know historical background and that's part of your assignments and doing your your time chart and having a true study Bible that gives you information. And with that observation comes interpretation. What does it mean? What did it mean? And what it meant is what it means. And let me repeat that. What did it mean? What did it mean? And it still means what it meant. And so really, we're asking, what did it mean when it was first written? God inspired it, but human beings put it down in writing. The words that we've read in Genesis and Exodus, what would those words have meant to Moses at that time? It will mean the same thing today, but the application will be different. It's application to our lives and the lives of people around it. Application to the circumstances that are very different today than they were, separated by thousands of years of history, time, culture, and geography. And so the application will be different. But I belong to that school of thought that says, it means what it meant. So our interpretation needs to honor the original intent of the author, God, and the human person who's putting the words down. But the applications are different. So a lot of times people get all upset at each other and really they haven't seen the difference between interpretation and application. Bad interpretation will result in bad application so get your interpretation straight. IBS, in simple terms, is the practical application of inductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning is a method in which a conclusion is drawn by following the shortest line from the information that you observe in front of you. Deductive reasoning, by comparison, is drawing a conclusion by following a longer route of searching for supporting evidence comparing and contrasting data, then researching alternative possibilities. There's a time and place for deductive reasoning. There's a time and place for deductive study. While the conclusion of a deductive argument is considered certain, the truth of the conclusion of an inductive argument may be probable based upon the evidence given. For example, there's been a crime committed. Something happened in a house and the neighbors call the police. The first responders are wearing uniforms. So you wind up with police uniform patrol officers who go to the house to find out what happened. A neighbor called, there was a noise, and so they go into the house and find it's a mess. It's been trashed, and there's a body. Well, they're the first responders wearing uniform. Their job is not to investigate the crime. Their job is to secure the scene, observe what's there, and make sure nobody messes with what's there until the detective gets there, okay? They're a higher ranking policemen. The detective comes in and begins deductive study. The patrol uniform policemen they do inductive study. They just observe what's there. They do take notes. And and they will make their own interpretation based upon their inductive observation until the detective says, thank you, we've got it, Uh, the forensic guys are here, the crime scene investigators are here, you guys are are free to go on to whatever your next thing is. That, to me, helps me see the distinction between inductive Bible study and deductive Bible study. (laughs) To get in there and observe and draw some conclusions, knowing I may come back here later and I might see evidence that I didn't see the first time I looked, and that will happen. And that's not a bad thing. It's not that you were ignorant or blind, it's just that you were given a short span of time, get in, do some inductive observation, come to a conclusion, and then move on to the next one. Whereas the crime scene investigators get in there and and they're doing all the, the, the careful DNA level type stuff. There's a time and place for that. And I, I, and I want you to get excited about uh, learning more history of the Bible, learning more, more language and words that, that, uh, in the composition of God's Word. There's a time and place for that. IBS is following the direct path to grasp meaning. IBS is following the evidence where it directly leads you, without wandering too far, Deductive Bible study is following farther and farther, deeper and deeper. The danger is gathering information that is not reliable evidence, which might contaminate the genuine evidence, getting caught up in stuff that really is not part of of that scene. This requires more time, more discernment, and more resources. And someday you may get more time, and you may have more resources, and I say go for it. The benefit of deductive study is that you might uncover evidence that informs or changes your interpretation that's historical, cultural, linguistic, archaeological. So I'm just telling you that, that in 12 weeks, this is inductive study. To go beyond that becomes more of a deductive where you are accumulating more resources and you're looking up more stuff and, and uh, you, more, more tools for the study of God's Word. So as your first week instructor... I want to challenge you to read God's word. And I I want to to applaud you for having made the commitment to read through it together in 12 weeks. And again, what you're doing is a good thing, and and you will thank yourself later, (laughs) Okay, I want to encourage you to know God's word. Hide God's word in your heart. Um, Memorize portions of it. Um, I want to build you up to trust God's word, to believe it is true that they're not just words on the page. I've read some great books that are words on the page, and they brought me joy and entertainment and satisfaction and imagination. Uh, First time I read The Lord of the Rings. Oh, wow, the imagination in there. I read it when I was 17 years old. A year later, I read it again. And I think for seven years, I read it every summer. And I, I, I haven't read it every year since then, but every few years, I'll pick it up I'll read it again, and it's, it's refreshing. And I've, I've read other works by Tolkien and Lewis and Charles Williams, other members of the Inklings. Uh, I've read John Donne's A Hound of Heaven, an ancient epic poem. Uh, literature that, that is, is great, but it doesn't, it doesn't change us the way God's word has the power to transform what we are. God's word can be trusted. I want to equip you to understand God's word. To equip you, to give you the tools, show you how to use the tools, so that you understand God's word and can, and, and can understand it on the fly because a lot of, of ministry in life is, is people a- asking you things or ha- having questions or, or you wanting to have the right answers for people. And sometimes you, you've, gotta, you've gotta pull it out quickly. And you don't, you don't have the time to say, well, I'm going to go home, pull out my eight Bible references and dictionaries and concordances, and I'll get back with you. Sometimes you can. I, I want to equip you to understand God's word so that you feel confident that somebody can ask you a question, and, and your response is, well, well, show me here what you're talking about. Have you seen me do that? Where a question will come up, and I'll ask, what verse is that? Which reference is that? Even when I know, <laughs> I'll still ask because I want everybody else to have the time to find it and get there. I want to charge you to habitually reflect on God's Word, to reflect, to to meditate. There is real biblical meditation where where you look at something and you pause and you let it get in and and it marinates in your thought and through your being. I want to charge you to habitually reflect on God's Word. And I want to join you to do God's Word. I love that within YWAM, it's not that you've got to learn, 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 and then do something. You you already found out that YWAM says, yeah, learn and do. Learn and do. You're going to learn something each week, and you're going to do stuff. And quickly get people into outreach and into ministry and into serving in different capacities so that we can do God's Word. Do not wait to do God's Word. Uh, I, I had friends in seminary. They're going to wait until they got their three-year master divinity degree before they actually did anything. And I was like, "Nah, I'm I'm serving at my church and and serving in the neighborhood and helping my neighbors and I I just I didn't know any different. I just thought that's what we do." So there are some questions that are in my mind the best questions to ask as you're looking at any passage. And it starts with what does the passage actually say within context? What does it actually say? And look at it together. What what does it say? As you read the words, what do they say? The second question is, there are words here. What do these main words mean? Are, Are there pivotal words? Are there significant words? All sentences are gonna have components. Typically, a sentence is gonna have a verb and a subject. There might be an object, a direct object. It might even have an indirect object. It might have a prepositional phrase. With a preposition and an object of the preposition. It might have an adjective that's modifying the noun. It might have an adverb that's modifying the verb. Cool. you got a sentence. A sentence can be a verb. A verb and a subject. Jesus wept. Okay. Wept. There's There's your verb. Subject is Jesus' personal name. It's a person identified. Okay. Very simple sentence. Subject, verb. But there's an action there. What do the pivotal words mean? Uh, for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son okay what does so mean for god so loved the world that he gave what does so mean anybody for god so loved the world that he gave so what does it mean in that context it's a
2: uh example but it modifies love in the sense of making it more like a i don't remember
1: really what this word called Making it more, okay. For God so loved the world that he gave. Making it more. Okay, Uh, if if it's making it more, uh, that's an adjective. Adjective, uh, more, much, quantity is adjectival. Therefore, that modifies a noun. And quite honestly, in Old English, the word so, S-O, could be an adverb or an adjective. And looking at the English, it's uncertain, it's unclear. Well, having read the Greek, they spell their adjectives and adverbs radically differently. So they leap off the page. You can tell whether this is modifying a noun or a verb. In, uh, in Greek, it's hutos. It's an adverb. It's modifying the type of action. It's telling what kind of love, what manner of love. Now listen to it again. What manner of love? For God so loved the world that he gave. It's not God loved the world so much. It's that God loved the world so So how? He gave. So a better translation is God loved the world in such a manner that He gave His Son. It's talking about sacrifice. So uh, the pivotal words now reading the English inductively not clear. Quite honestly, Uh, I, I would draw the conclusion that since the the secondary verb is gave, primary word is love, and gave is explaining the love of God. So the word so has to be an adverb by the structure of the English. I know that. But not everybody would know how to to tear apart a sentence. Well, okay, let me say this. It sure helps to know how to tear apart a sentence, whether your language is English or Spanish. I was teaching a group in Berlin. Wonderful people, they knew exactly how to tear, tear apart a German sentence, and they showed me how. It was amazing. And so we read some verses in German. We read some verses in English, and on several occasions, the German was closer to the Hebrew than the English was because the way they did their grammar was closer to the Hebrew, which was kind of cool. So, in your own language, um, build up your skills at tearing apart sentences, Uh, being able to look at a sentence and know there's the verb, there's the main verb, oh, here's the secondary verb, or here's a participle, or the verb is active or passive because an active verb is gonna have an active subject, a passive verb is gonna have a passive subject. So, bless you. So, uh, I'm not not trying to make this too hard. I'm not trying to make it too difficult, or or I'm not trying to make it complicated. What I want you to do is, as you read the Bible, clear your head, relax, and let the words say what the words say. Now that does mean you have to re-engage your brain (laughs) and think through, okay, there's the subject, there's, there's the object, and here's where it's going. Is there anything in the grammar that illumines our understanding? Um, uh, a, t- a temporal phrase. Then they went. Immediately after that, because, or therefore. Every time you see therefore, go back and read the, the previous statement, because therefore is indicating the thing you just read. Well, here, here is uh, causation, significance, purpose, result. So therefore is one of those grammatical cue words to say, follow along, stay in line, pay attention. It helps to know the primary purpose of the book that you're reading, if it can be known. Like John's Gospel, John comes right out and says, these things have been written in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, I mean, And then you read John's Gospel and lo and behold, it achieves that purpose of bringing us into faith And even when I've read John a thousand times, it increases my faith, my trust. It has that power. It actually does that. Go back and read Martin Luther, the original Martin Luther, and he talks about the transformation that was happening as he read John's Gospel. It fulfilled the purpose that was written. Uh, Other books, uh, they don't state the purpose, but when you read through it, it becomes obvious. Ephesians. Paul didn't begin it by saying, here's the reason I'm writing this letter to you. Well, you read the first half of it, and he's persuading them, of the new life in Christ. The last half of the letter, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Steps to take to walk in the new life in Christ. So it's a persuasive letter with instructions. The persuasion is this new life in Christ is just awesome. Here's how you do it. Don't copy the Gentiles. Don't get caught up in scandals. Uh, keep allowing yourself to be full of the Holy Spirit. Don't get drunk. <laughs> So, it's, it's, uh, each book of the Bible has purpose, and part of what we do here in our instruction is to try to identify that purpose if it's not all that obvious. Is there some background information that we should be aware of? Now this goes into the de- deductive part. Uh, the background study is the deductive issue. Uh, as you're reading it together in your small group, there are some background things that there aren't on the page. Oftentimes, they assume you know that stuff. Matthew's gospel assumes you know 40 prophecies already, that you went to Sabbath school in the synagogue and you learned all the prophetic stuff. He assumes that. Well, not so much for, for us in our modern culture, which means we have to do some background study. And what does the Bible say elsewhere regarding this truth? Parallel passages where the same word or phrase or idea is taught. And you're flowing through with your redemptive Yeah, I mean, that's uh, following the redemptive plan in marking your Bible. Uh, what what other themes are you marking your Bible for as you read together? Okay. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. There's a nature. Uh, uh, what?
3: God's character and nature. God's character and nature.
1: Um, w- the, which ones? Action principles. Biblical, principle. a- biblical action principles. Uh, talk about that. Uh, d- tell, tell me how you would know something is a biblical action principle
3: things
1: things that we apply to our lives i'm a little bit hard of hearing so good
3: <laughs> job
1: <laughs> yeah excellent <laughs> okay um <laughs> And the final question is, how should I now live? In view of all these questions about the text, how should I live? The, the, the actions that I should be taking, the character I should be developing. Um, and those questions come out of the classic interpretive principles. And, and these are ancient principles that have been used, by, not, not just by people studying the Bible, but by people studying great literature. So these are principles that are applicable to literature and really fit with our study of the Bible. Interpret a passage in light of its context. Read the context. Interpret according to the correct meaning of the words as best as you can understand what they correctly mean. Interpret according to the proper grammar in a sentence. Don't don't break up sentences. Don't, don't, Don't lift a phrase out and ignore what the rest of the sentence says. Interpret according to the proper grammar in a sentence. Don't butcher the grammar. Interpret according to the author's purpose and plan, if you know it. Interpret in the light of the historical, geographical, and cultural background when you study that stuff. And interpret each passage in the light of the Bible's teaching as a whole. Because the Bible has integrity. The Bible is consistent within itself from book to book, testament to testament. Let me give you some suggestions about attitude. Read carefully. Uh, Have an open heart and open mind as you read. Observe what is there on the page. Even if you've heard somebody tell you or teach you or preach at you about what it means, let, let the words on the page of the Bible speak clearly in case what you heard wasn't what's on the page. Okay. And in no way would I want to ever dishonor any great teacher or preacher or leader that you've looked up to. But sometimes you'll come across a passage and you read it and you go, Wow, I love my old pastor, but that, that really shows that, that he he was a little bit off and, and at all times be humble. Don't go running back and wag your finger and, you know, chew somebody out. Um be humble. But be devoted to the word is true. Observe what is there on the page. Discover the plain meaning of that passage of scripture. Avoid sensationalism. And I say that because I've lived through waves and waves of sensationalism. It's, it's like the tide comes in and out. Mm-hmm. And there's sensationalism and the tide goes out. And then there's sensationalism and the tide goes out. And every few years, the, the, the tide comes in on the health, wealth, name it and claim it thing and then the tide goes out. Uh, The the philosophy uh, that God wants all Christians to be extremely wealthy and always healthy and never sick. And I, I believe that conclusion is a distortion of several verses, not the truth of God's word. Can God heal us? Yes. Should we ask God to heal us? Yes. We should ask him as children coming to the Father. Father, I know you can do all things and you do them well. I would ask, would you consider doing this for so and so and intercede and make petitions boldly knowing that he has a big plan and you might have prayed precisely in accordance with what he had planned all along and he says yes I'm, I'm glad you're on board with me now let's do that other times he says actually that person's days are numbered and I'm looking forward to bringing them into glory so they're not going to get healed on earth they're going to get the ultimate healing because ultimate healing is taking brokenness and making it whole and sometimes we think that the human body is the whole point. That's just part of the process. And there's some people I loved, and I wanted them to live longer, but their days were up. And I'm glad because they don't have to put up with stuff we do and look at the stuff. So, okay. Now, um, avoid sensationalism. Uh, every verse is the word of God, while not every verse is an immediate word of instruction for you. When, you, when you're looking for, act, for action, uh, some actions are not for us to take, okay? Um, the, the first one to take food and put it in his mouth before sunset shall be slaughtered. King Saul said that, not knowing that his son didn't get the memo, and he's coming in from the battle, and he sees a, a honeycomb, he dips his spear into the. He's starving; hasn't eaten all day. He takes some honey, and then when when he shows up to the other soldiers who heard what the king, Jonathan's father said, they all freaked out because that meant Jonathan's life was in jeopardy. Well, that was a that was an incident at the time. Um, the, there are some incidents in the Bible that are very specific. Uh, you know, Paul wanted one of his servants to to bring. Some of his parcels, uh, a piece of clothing, and some of the parchment and paper that he had. Well, that was an incident, not an instruction for us. Encounter the phenomenal God in the Word of God. Um, don't get bored. <laughs> uh, know when you're tired, but encounter the phenomenal God in the Word. Um, don't cr- you don't have to create sensationalism? Just let it be sensational. God made. Iron float on top of the water. Wow. God made a, a, a jar of oil not run out. And that poor lady had oil that just kept, she kept pouring. And it just kept coming out and days would pass and it should have run out and it didn't. Well, that was phenomenal and the prophet reminded her of that. And, and, and then the dead child and, and the prophet's laying on the child and doing, I don't know, some kind of massage or something and the child gets up and lives. That's phenomenal. Rejoice in those phenomenal events. And then go where the evidence leads you. Go where the evidence leads you and then do what it tells you to do because that will help you understand how now shall I live. We looked, I, I mentioned this yesterday and I, I guess I had it on the brain because I, it was in my notes and I had, re, I had read it recently. When I brought up Exodus 34.5, the Lord came down in the cloud stood there with him and proclaimed his name Yahweh, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. With that one, I, I tried to demonstrate yesterday, well, you know, pray about it and then observe what it says so you know what it doesn't say. And the position of the noun, the sin of the fathers, is if those children commit the sin that their fathers committed, then they will be punished. And so it, it's the, the, the grammar supports that it's the sin it's not they're punished because the father sinned. If it if it were in the verb position, that that's, that possibility would be there. But it's the noun. Do we have sin? Yes or no. Do we sin? Yes or no. Should we sin? Yes or no. Okay. <laughs> Now, remember those questions when you read 1 John. At the very end of, of this DBS, you'll get to First. that's the last week, right? John week? Okay, 1 John. And, and John's got a, got a riddle for you, okay? Um, and there are, there are some people, as they read it, they say, when we get saved, we can't sin. The power of God is so great that we stop sinning. We no longer have a sin nature, and we do not commit sins. And it leads to the once-saved, always-saved perspective. So uh, I would say, well, pray, observe what those different verses say, and then interpret according to the correct grammar. Okay. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I am not silent. Psalm 22, verse 22. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. All of you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Lord, give us insight. What do you mean? Because I've heard people say that when Jesus was on the cross and Jesus quoted this, Eloah, Eloah, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've heard people preach and teach that God the Father turned his face away from the Son and he forsook the Son because Jesus said so because Jesus became sin and God can't look at sin. Now, I've read Psalm 22 a thousand times. I I, I kid you not. I cannot get that from Psalm 22. Now, I've only given you an excerpt here, just a few verses of the larger psalm. It does begin with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, because it's in the Bible, does it mean it's true? Does it mean that God does forsake someone who's praying to him? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? By stating it, does that mean that it is true? Because I can show you 30 psalms that start with a statement that halfway through the prayer is corrected. They're called laments. It's a prayer form in which you express the depth of your emotion, and your emotion is not true, but it's what you feel. Because God, come, God says, come as you are. Tell me what you're feeling. Well, here's what I'm feeling like. You have abandoned me. You have rejected me. You have ignored my prayer. You have closed your ears. You've turned your back on me. Th- those are some of the Psalm, Psalms of lament in the Psalms. And I discover that verse 1 is challenged by verse 24. He has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So just by inductive reading, just observation, I can tell there's something happening here. The opening verses seem to be the emotion of, of the human. And verse 23 and 24 is saying, oh, that first thought I had, I was wrong. God, in fact, has not forsaken me. In fact, he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he's actually listened to my cry for help. What I didn't give you was verse uh, 3, 4, and 5, which is a cry for help. Uh, Rescue me from the dogs. Uh, They've they've gambled away my clothes. They've pierced my side. They've shouted insults at at me. And so it it really is a prophecy of the cross. But inductive Bible study would be, let me read it. Let me make sure I understand what the words say. Now, there are some things that inductive Bible study can't tell you. Genesis 4.17, Cain lay with his wife and she became pregnant, gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. Can IBS answer the question, where did Cain find his wife? Now, I've read Genesis over and over and over again. I've read the rest of the Bible. I can't find any. Nothing helps me. Nothing tells me where Cain got his wife. All I have are presumptions. I can draw some conclusions, but they're based on presumptions. When in doubt, keep it simple. Honestly admit the probability. It's possible, not provable. How should I now live? Well, whoever Cain's wife was, whether she was a cousin or from another tribe, and, and there are some Jewish uh, mystics who say, "Well, she, she was Lilith's daughter. Uh, Lilith was Adam's other wife." <laughs> Not in the Bible. <laughs> Lilith doesn't appear in the Bible, but Lilith is part of Jewish folk tales, and uh, some—it's it, a—it it has become a common girl's name. Um, but it's fascinating stuff. The, the whole Lilith, Lilith cycle of stories is really kind of cool sometimes, and kind of weird a lot. But. Um, I'll honestly tell you, the Bible doesn't tell us where Cain's wife came from. It's not part of God's story of redemption. And and that is the answer to some of our questions. It's not, we'll, we'll come up with a question and we'll say, well, it's, the answer to that is not in the Bible, or at least not clearly stated in the Bible. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did God the Father forsake Jesus while hanging on the cross? Will God the Father forsake me in my darkest hour of need? Wow. Now, inductive Bible study doesn't give me all the answers I want. So I went searching to find out, why why does Matthew mention the ninth hour? Why is that significant? Oh, every three hours they would pray. In the Jewish cycle of the first century, they would pray when they got up in the morning, which was about six, what we would call six a.m., they called getting up <laughs> and you would pray and, and then you would you would uh you know h- have a breakfast and then start working at the third hour what we would call about nine o'clock uh, while they're at work or or wherever they are they would stop with their co-workers and they would pray Lord would you protect us as we're doing labor today and about three hours later what we would call noon they would call the sixth hour and they would pray, uh, and they would pray the hamotzi. The hamotzi was, blessed are you, O Lord our God, king of the universe, and you brought, brought forth bread from the earth to feed us so that we can work. And so they had a quick lunch, meal, prayer. The ninth hour, what we call 3 p.m., is when traditionally they would gather together and somebody would choose one of the psalms. And would they would have a cantor response, where the leader would, would speak it out, and the others in the prayer group And if they're at work or at school or in the neighborhood or whatever they're doing, doing chores or whatever, they would find a dozen other people or so. And somebody, whoever spoke out first, got to choose which song. And if there was a lull and a quiet, everybody would be going, okay, whose turn is it? You know, like we do. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Apparently, the afternoon prayer time had come, and nobody else offered to choose a prayer. And I've read all of the Psalms, and there, there are there are almost 30 of them that are laments. They start out with a bummer statement, a sad exclamation that's not, actually not true in reality. It's simply a statement from the depths of despair that gets corrected in the prayer gradually. I've read all of those prayers, and I can't think of a better one to be chosen that day because it's got like a dozen Messianic prophecies in the prayer. You know, the gambling for the clothes and the people, you know, uh, slandering him and piercing his side. Not a bone would be broken, all that kind of stuff. I think it's the best prayer in the Bible to have been prayed that day. Now, inductive Bible study did not give me that all of the investigation and the deductive, detective work. It, it, took, it takes detective work to kind to find that kind of stuff. Oh, and, and back then, they didn't uh, number their prayers. The Psalms didn't have numbers yet. And so uh, I told you yesterday that uh, what we call Psalm 23 is actually called Yahweh Rohe, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, the title of this Psalm is iloa, iloa lama sabachthani. That's the title of the prayer. So what do you want to pray today? I, I want to pray Eloah, uh, Eloah, lama which is um, the one that says he's not turned his face away. So I, I give you that to show you the limits of IBS. But the but the, the fruit of I, IBS is that you can go through the Bible in 12 weeks. Later on, come back and do deductive work and go deeper. When you get to Daniel, you're going to want to do that someday. Okay, You, you have to uh, with... With Romans, you wanna go deeper. You're gonna read Romans in a few weeks, and it says so many things. Book of Hebrews. There are almost a thousand quotes and allusions of Old Testament culture and words and ideas that, that are crammed into that book to show you, you know, the temple was great, Jesus is greater. Moses, he was great. Jesus is greater. Sacrifice is great. Jesus is great. You name it. It was great, but Jesus is greater. The the supremacy of Christ over all things in that book. Well, deductive work can show you where, where all those ideas came from. Okay? Any questions on that?
3: Stubborn thing. All of us are like, I oh,
1: know the New Testament it's better than anything, but it'll be a whole new New Testament to you when you read it. this time of so. I'm heavy to the Moody, movies. Movies. Uh, me and and three three other guys. We've been a, a covenant small group for decades. We get together, we have dinner. If there's a decent movie, we go watch it. After the movie, we find a quiet corner, might get a, a cup of coffee or tea, and we sit for an hour or two and talk about our lives, our families, our wives, and we pray with each other. And these, we've known each other since high school. We care about each other. Our covenant is, I want to be involved in your life so that I can see the character of Christ shaped and more formed more perfectly in you. And so we've done vacations together. Our, 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 as couples with our wives, we, we travel places. So I'm headed to the movies with the guys. My phone rings. And so they go on into the theater, and I take the call. And it's somebody from my church, and and they need to talk. Well, they chose right at that time to need to talk. So I figured I can't hang on. So I do the talking. And I get into the theater late. Movie's already going on. I don't know the characters. I don't know the plot. I don't know the problem. I don't know who to root for, who to be angry about. So I'm lost. I'm piecing it together. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I make some sense of it. But I figure, okay, after the movie, when we go out for coffee, they'll, the other guys, they'll give me the backstory, the origin story, who the characters were. And, and that's, that's how it is if we just tackle the New Testament. And it's like we've gotten to the movie late, and we don't know what happened before that. Uh, the, the prequel, <laughs> the plot, uh, the main character. So, and I don't mean to trivialize, but it's in that sense of, of knowing the story from the beginning, and what you're doing now is you're getting all that stuff from the beginning, and hopefully, uh, it, things are popping in your head like, oh man, now I get that thing in 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 First Peter when he's talking about Noah, and he's, oh that makes sense now. So you, you've come into the theater, and you got here before the movie started, and I hope you're going to enjoy the whole thing, the whole story. Okay. Now, uh, the Bible moves progressively. Week one, Genesis, Exodus, Job. We put Job in here because it fits with the period of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he fits within the patriarchal period, but he's not included in the patriarchal story. So we assume that Moses was the first one, first human, who wrote. We assume that Job is as a story as old as the stories about Joseph. And we learn something about God, but not everything about God. After the books of Moses, you get into Joshua and Judges and Ruth, and then you get, you're going to have Samuel and Chronicles and Kings, and you're going to get Isaiah and Jeremiah, those guys, moving all the way through Daniel and Micah. As we move progressively, chronologically through time, we learn more and more about God. He reveals himself and his plan progressively over time. And so I I go back to the idea of you're in a theater and there's the curtain and the curtain is opening slowly. Usually when you go to a theater, the curtain goes, boom, open, and then the whole thing starts. In this one, imagine the curtain is slowly opening and the character's on stage and you don't see the whole stage at first. You, you, You don't get the whole panorama. It progressively opens the curtain. That's how I feel about the Bible. Over time, it progressively opens and it reveals more and more, and it assumes that you know all the previous stuff that was revealed to build on. And so, don't land somewhere early in the Old Testament on some statement from God or about God and think that's the final word. It's not. Clearly, it's not the final word. The final word isn't until you get to the final book, and then you know the curtain's blown open. So, with its with progressive revelation we can also see that that the books that come along later and later and later reflect back on the previous stories and books and help interpret previous events so that the prophets and the wisdom literature interpret the Torah, the the law of Moses. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament. The epistles interpret the Gospels. Uh, Also, the systematic passages interpret the incidental. Redemptive plan is systematic meaning that it's woven through the whole system. It's there, not on every page, but it's there. It's brought up again and again systematically. Then there are incidents, um, protecting guests in his house by offering his daughters to be violated by the mob. Okay, that's an incident. <laughs> it's not systematic. It's just, that was just a weird act of piety that should not be copied. Bad idea. And so the systematic passages interpret those incidental passages. Uh, Universal passages interpret the local passages. Uh, Statements that are for all people, for all time, in all places help interpret the local statement. Uh, Paul talked about women keeping their head covered because of the angels. Well, in Corinth, where he's writing, uh, most of the, 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 the temples... The majority of them were run by the priestesses, so they were women-led. And the ladies would wear their hair in a particular way to show which temple they were associated with. And when the gospel came, a lot of those ladies, they, they accepted Christ, became part of the gospel. But it was going to take a while for their hair to grow out. So it might have been an incidental local thing of keep your head covered for the time being, so you're not drawing attention like like somebody who came out of a gang still wants to wear their gang colors or they got tattoos to show you know who they're involved with. Well, cover your tattoos for the time being because it might be baggage necessary. So th- there are some local statements that seem to be in the text of scripture. It's the universal teachings that will help us interpret some of the local teachings because there's some groups who say well, women when they worship have, have to have doilies in their head to be covered. And I don't mean to disrespect that 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 conviction, but I think it's a—it's taking a local statement and turning it into a universal. Didactic passages interpret symbolic and non-didactic. Clear statements like, confess your sin, he is faithful and just, he will forgive your sin. That's didactic. Didactic is a clear statement of teaching, just a clear statement of teaching, as opposed to non-didactic, uh, a non-didactic statement that... Um, even Michael, when he encountered Satan in a debate over the body of Moses, did not rebuke him but said, The Lord rebuke you. Well, that's a non didactic report of an event without a clue as to what it means in the context. A non didactic teaching. Didactic teaching would be resist the devil. That's didactic. Okay? So, th- those are some principles uh, of of how to respond to progressive revelation in the Bible. And I have illustrations moving right along. Okay, (laughs) Uh, Job. Job 40, verse 1 and 2 says, Then the Lord said to Job, Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? Now, did you read the complete book of Job today? All, All the way through? God bless you. (laughs) Um, Give me some feedback. What are your thoughts on Job? What's your reaction to Job?
2: I think he's very relatable. Hmm? I think he's very relatable. Just like, you know, we all have like trials and tribulations and it's very easy to... um, Question God and question okay. His His plan and His purpose during hard times, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's cool to see how like even though He went through all of that, like He still had humility and like repented and asked for forgiveness. And for me, that's so hard because it's like seeing that. It's like dang, like with everything that happened to him, it's like I don't know if I would have done that. You know, like everything was taken from him. So in a way, it kind of like. Um, that's the word like pushes me or challenges me to have like that faith and humility, mm-hmm.
1: like Jonathan So yes. What did you think about his friends? Oof. I don't need any. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about assumptions. Hmm? Talk about assumptions. Just assuming that he just did all of the list of things that they labeled out, and I'm like, you yeah, gotta be guilty.
2: Mm-hmm. like, did you kill an orphan? Oh my God. It's so specific. <laughs> did you kill an orphan? Oh <laughs> my. Right. Yeah, just the things that popped up in their head. As I'm reading it, I'm like, where did this come from? <laughs> where did you guys pull yeah. this out of? It's like pulling a rabbit out of a hat right here out of like thin air. And then yeah. it's like, no wonder God was like, yeah, even though Joe questioned God's character, in the end, he he was going on an emotional roller coaster. It was it was like going up and down. And his friends, um, like the last guy was trying to make a point about like, yeah, God's character never changes; He's just and didn't do what his friend, what the other friends did, and added that last part where it's like, oh, okay, don't misunderstand Yeah and try to be God, basically. His friends trying to be God, basically, at that moment, being thinking that they had the weights right there to determine um, God's character in that moment and whether or not Job was actually... Like, if it was up to their friends, like if his friends were actually God's, yeah, <laughs> what they said, it would have been their way. Mm-hmm. It,
1: yeah. It. And occasionally, there would be a grain of truth to what they said. They would start out with something that that seemed substantial, and then it slid. Yeah. Yeah. Bamboo. Yeah. I
3: mean, sometimes I mean, I worked in the ministry for a lot of years, and so I spent a lot of time listening to like people like like start a relationship, you know, and uh, or try to like make their way kind of through the culture today. And sometimes we would liken that to like. The blind leading the blind. Mm-hmm. Then you've got your peers; they're like, well, let me tell you about relationships. So I'm like, well, twenty years later, I'm like, I don't know anything. about it. Like, Right. I'd say I'm an expert either, but I like, I feel like just there's just understanding that comes with time. Um, and so, generally, like, if someone was going to ask me, I would say, yeah, talk to somebody who's significantly older than you. You know, like, and who has a good world view. Um, whereas in this situation, yeah, they're they're kind of doing the best they can mm-hmm. with the knowledge that they have. It's not enough, right? because God is the source of this calamity, um, and so he's really the only one you can go to. Mm -hmm. It might comfort you to relate and share with somebody, but it doesn't mean they're the best person to give you advice and wisdom.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: The content is wrestling with the issue of the suffering of the righteous and the justice of God while also speaking to the larger question of where is wisdom found? The, the main points that we find is that wisdom is ultimately found in God alone. And note that God stayed quiet, I think, for way too long. Come on, I were waiting for him to jump in earlier. But he knew his timing. Human wisdom cannot on its own fully comprehend the ways of God. I can trust the ways of God. I can worship the ways of God. I can follow the ways of God. But do I fully comprehend? No. Undeserved suffering has no easy answer. There are some responses. But there's no easy, quick, pat answer. And God is not obligated to explain all things to fallen human beings. And having traveled the world, I realized some cultures with the church are of the mindset that they're not entitled. And I come back home to America and I realize Americans sure act real entitled. We have a right to know, as if, as if the Constitution guarantees our right to demand God to give explanation. I'm thinking, whoa. Um, over in Eastern Europe uh, with uh, people in Slovakia who lived under communist oppression for decades, And before that, they lived under the oppression of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And their culture within the church is, they're not entitled to anything. For hundreds of years, they've been beat up and marched across and oppressed, and they just rejoice that they can get up and breathe each day. Completely unrelated to what we're doing here. The day after Russia invaded Ukraine, we got an um, email from um, uh, Pastor Miro Tot. I, I've been to Slovakia a number of times uh, to support one of the churches there. My wife's family immigrated from Slovakia 100 years ago. Um, so we have a connection with Slovakia. Uh, the church of Kshice, Slovakia is 50 miles from the Ukrainian border. Slo- Slovakia and Ukraine share a border. And the day after Russia invaded, people from the Apostolic Church in Koshitsche drove 50 miles to the border and waited for refugees. And when refugees came to the border and they, and they showed their passes and stuff, loaded them up in cars, drove them 50 miles back to the city of Koshitsche to the church, and they had put the word out, bring food, bring clothes, and they fed the, the families there and then invited people from the church to come pick up folks and take them home take care of them, find a bed, and then they got back in their minivans and small buses and cars, whatever, drove back to the border, and did it again, and have been doing it every day since then, and talked to other churches in Košice, which is, it's the biggest city near the border, and so other churches in that area. The Slovaks have risen. The church in Slovakia has risen to this occasion. And they're not fixing the war, but they're rescuing the refugees. And I, I just rejoice in that. I just, I, and, and and so our church, West End Assembly of God, here in town, uh, trusts the apostolic church in Kashite, We put the word out and just, just started sending them money so they could go and buy whatever they needed, whatever food, clothes, bedding, whatever they needed. And other churches in the area have, have been doing that. I'm like, I can't fix the political issue. But this is this is the hand of Christ, the face of Christ. It's the church doing what we ought to be doing. So I, I just want you to know that God's doing some good things because some people they they had already read their Bible. <laughs> they already knew under these circumstances, if this happens, what's my default setting? Go to the border and pick people up and rescue them. So um, now wisdom literature. Uh, There are three biblical books that are clearly identified as the product of wisdom thinking. Those books are Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, where they are predominantly of a style of literature within Hebrew thought that's called wisdom. The wisdom style also appears somewhat in some other books, but these three, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, are solid wisdom, the whole from beginning to end. Numerous Psalms are also classified in the category. Psalm 1, 19, 49, 73, 111, 112, 119 are also the same style. So when you read those Psalms, you'll see, oh, this, this feels like Job. It feels like, like Ecclesiastes. The Song of Songs, or, or Song of Solomon, also has some, some of its content follows the same style as a literary style of, of wisdom. Now, not everything in these books is strictly speaking concerned with wisdom. Nevertheless, they in general contain the type of material that bears that wisdom label. So it is a literary style or genre of writing in ancient Hebrew literature. Wisdom literature tends to focus on people and their behavior, meaning how successful are they at making godly choices and whether or not they are learning how to apply God's truth to the experiences they have, and it's not so much the case that people seek to learn how to be wise, but rather they seek to get wise over time. So it's more of process than event. It's not like people praying, God give me wisdom, give me wisdom, give me wisdom, so that as soon as I open my eyes, I'm wise. It's more of how do I think so that in the process of life, I will gain greater wisdom and insight so that the next time I face a circumstance, I can fall back on the truth of God and the experiences I've had and look at my experiences in the past through the lens of God's truth and oh, that's wisdom. Biblically, that's where wisdom comes from is taking the truth of God and then using that as as a lens to interpret that event I just went through or my experiences from years ago so that when something shows up the next time, I'll be prepared to process through my response and it would be a godly response. And so the wisdom literature is showing, at least in the book of Job, it's showing his friends didn't get it. <laughs> they, they did not know the process. And and Job is going through that process of how do I interpret this? What is the truth of God that needs to be the lens for me to understand the pain and the suffering and the loss? I mean, he lost his family. He, he lost his flesh and blood. So, Wisdom develops that process in us. Um, Anyone who seeks to apply God's truth daily and learn from their experience can become wise eventually. But there's a great danger in seeking wisdom simply for one's own advantage or in a way that does not honor God above all. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, Isaiah 5. Moreover, God's wisdom always surpasses human wisdom, Isaiah 29. Like, will I pursue wisdom in order to know how to invest in the stock market, to make money? No, for me, no, maybe for some people. For me, I want to gain wisdom so that I can speak into other people's lives so that the experiences I've had and the experiences revealed in God's word teach us how to respond to the next event that we're gonna encounter because you're gonna face another event that would require discernment, understanding, a, a wise response. In the book of Job, uh, there, uh, there are at least two dates involved in, in the book uh, the date of the man Job himself and his historical setting, and the date of the inspired writer who composed the book, many years later. We don't know who wrote it. Uh, like the Hebrew patriarchs, Job lived more than 100 years, so, in chapter 42. Um, so he's more than 100 years old. So he's, he's in that group with Abraham and Isaac. They, you know, they exceeded 100, 120. His wealth was measured in cattle, just like Abraham. He acted as a priest for his family, like Abraham. Uh, the mention of Kessita, which is a piece of silver in chapter 42. Uh, Kessita is also mentioned in Genesis 33 and Joshua 24. And iron is mentioned in those books as well as in the book of Job it suggests a date somewhere between 1700 B.C. and maybe as late as 1100 B.C. The fact is, we don't know exactly when, but he seems to fit in that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob period. Now, as far as the writer, the, the human writer, it could be dated any time from the reign of Solomon to the exile. Don't know. But by the exile, they had scrolls. When they went into exile, they had the scroll of Job. And so they carried that with them, and so it had to be written before them. Although the writer was probably Hebrew, he mentions nothing about Israelite history. No mention of the kings or the nation, it's just, it's not part of the story. Uh, The human writer never signed his writing. Uh, He mentions Uz, and Uz was on the eastern side of the Jordan River, somewhere there in the middle of the map, not sure where, (laughs) just out there, don't know. So, (laughs) just so you know, okay? because we have to know what we don't know. The central issue is the struggle over the ways of God, especially God's justice. Um, Godly people suffer, Um, not from human hands, but from acts of God. Uh, A storm, a tornado, a hurricane, a flood, an earthquake, disease. At the same time, the author raises the question, where is wisdom found? which in the end is powerfully answered in terms of God alone. Now, he doesn't answer that until the last three chapters. And I, I, I can express my frustration, but if I do, I have to be careful that I'm, I don't let, let it look like I'm frustrated at God. <laughs> the participants, the three friends, and then the younger Elihu and Job himself, all of them are in turn silenced before the ultimate wisdom of God. And when God lets loose, he lets loose. And he puts every one of them, all five of those men, in their place. And anybody who reads it, he puts me in my place. And I go willingly. So when God raises the issues of where were you when I, can you do this? It puts me in my place. I go to my place and I realize I can't. I wasn't there. I, I can't throw a lasso around that beast and, and drag it around like God can. Who do I think I am? Well, I, I think I am the righteousness of God in Christ, redeemed by the blood. But I'm not a philosopher. I, I'm not willing to say some of the things that those friends, those so-called friends of Job said. The structure of the book supports the author's purpose. Uh, There there are large parts of it. Um, The two larger parts, chapter 3 through 27 and 29 through 46, have three sets of speeches each. Part one is a series of dialogues, back and forth, back and forth. It's framed by Job's lament. There's a pause with the lament and a closing discourse. And the dialogues are arranged in a three-cycle pattern. Speeches by Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar with a response to each by Job. The dialogue cycle gets shorter by a third each time they go through it. So if you felt like they were going around in circles, they were. If you felt like they were repeating themselves, they were. And that, that is a style of debate in ancient Jewish culture. Uh, as they run out of anything new to say, and they all become increasingly blunt in their disagreement. They became sharper and sharper. Part two consists of three monologues. A monologue by Job, a monologue by Elihu, and then a monologue by God. Finally, chapter 38 through 41, and he gets the last word. And all of this, except for the narrative framework, is expressed in wonderful poetry. So the the Hebrew poetry structure is there. And some Bibles, when they get printed, they they try to keep the poetic lines so so you get a feel that it's poetry, not prose. Um, The poems are are skillfully framed by the narrative setting. Um, Here's how I break it down into a simple outline. There is first two chapters, prologue. Chapter 4 through 27 is the three dialogue disputes. Chapter 28 is the discourse of where does wisdom come from. So you have a pause from the debate, and then you pick up again, chapter twenty-nine through forty-one, again three three monologues, and then chapter forty-two is the conclusion, the epilogue of the whole thing. Today you read the whole book in one sitting. You may not do that again. That's okay. I return often to God's monologue. <laughs> I've read I've read the other stuff. I'm not going to learn a lot of, of truth about how to live by reading it again. That doesn't mean I avoid it. There are times I've gone back and I've read the whole book. But it's more frequent that I'll, I'll find myself in, in chapter 41 and just drink it in as God speaks to Job and to us. And, and that's okay, okay. It's just like going to one of the Psalms and you don't always read all, all 150 Psalms. You'll choose one. And, and you'll meditate on that and pray through it and sing it and rejoice in it and then go to have your day. So it's okay to do a, a, a devotional out of the last three chapters of Job without having to read the whole thing. You've read the whole thing now. I applaud you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, the four guys who dispute with Job all express a stark form of what we call conventional wisdom. We all know these things to be true that a just God would not allow the righteous to suffer unjustly and that Job's suffering, therefore, is the direct result of specific sin. We all know that to be true, right? That's conventional wisdom. Wrong. But it's widely known or thought. Job knows better, but in the end, he has protested to many other things as well. So God speaks out of the storm, finally, and calls him and the whole world to a humble recognition that human wisdom amounts to nothing before God. Nothing. Squat. Empty. Void. So to get the most benefit from your reading, it's helpful to understand what the author is ultimately doing through his arrangement of things and the content of the various speeches. His concern lies at two points the challenge to God by Satan, which is, will a person fear God for nothing? Will they revere God if they get nothing out of it? And the question that the author himself asked, where can wisdom be found? And those two points, they should penetrate us. Don't run quickly past those. Uh, will a person follow God if that person feels like they don't get anything out of it. And here's the danger. If when we do evangelism, we tell people benefits of worshiping Jesus, and we start telling them things that they'll get out of it as if they'll get that every day always for the rest of their life. All your problems will go away. All your family members will love you. All your bills will get paid. Not one of those statements are true. Will some of their family members be kinder to them? Maybe, maybe not. Will they be able to pay their bills? Don't know. Depends upon the economy, what kind of job you have, circumstances of, of the the socioeconomic conditions of the world. And if you don't talk back to your boss, many different factors. So. I I caution you, be careful what you tell people when you are seeking to reach them for Christ. Tell them the truth. Otherwise, they will embrace an expectation that is not real that God does not endorse. And I've been part of a a faith community where we, I've been part of a church where we're open to the move of the Spirit. and, And we invite spiritual giftings. And for some reason, the people who like the um, word of faith, name it and claim it, always healthy, always wealthy philosophy, think that our kind of church is the perfect place for them to be and to share their philosophy. And uh, as as a shepherd, I have had to pick up so many broken people who have believed that because they they were sold this story, which is a different gospel. It's not the gospel of the scripture. It's a different gospel from another place. And and broken lives because they were given this expectation of what God would do for them that God did not give. And then when what they expected doesn't happen, it's God's fault. And they're angry at God. Same thing happens when people say, uh, God took my wife. I can't believe in a God who would take my wife. Well, what happened? A car accident on the interstate. Uh, Blunt force trauma. She went into a coma died three weeks later. And they turned their back on God because God took her. Somebody told that man that God doesn't do that sort of thing. Or or, that, that, that God will give them a full life and they'll die together. Or whatever. Whatever he was told, whatever he believed, was not from Scripture. It was from a different gospel. Will a person fear God for nothing? Will a person worship God? Even if we don't get all the blessings that some people tell us that we are guaranteed to get, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name, Him first. And if there is blowback of blessing in my life, thank you. Now, uh, creaturely dependence and creaturely wisdom are debated. Um, what what do creatures depend upon? And what wisdom do we have? And that's part of the cycle of of the the debate between them. Uh, What will dominate most of the human speeches in the book is the question of theodicy, namely, how to reconcile undeserved suffering with a God who is both almighty and just. That's theodicy, that that issue of uh, how can we believe in God uh, who is loving and just while we live in a world where injustice is rampant, and it's a collision of those two ideas. Each of the participants has a significant role to play in this divine human drama. And Satan is in the story. Well, what's he doing here? Um, He plays the crucial role of putting God on trial. So it's really not about Job, it's about God. About the basic relationship between the creator and his creatures. Whether their reciprocal joy in each other is only the result of what the human creature gets out of it. And if the human creature doesn't get anything out of it, they would ought to give up on God. Job's wife, she shows up at that point, uh, plays Satan's role on earth by urging Job to curse God and die. Okay, that's, that's bitter. Okay, that's cold. You can imagine Satan whispering, do it, do it. It issues whether the human beings love God, not for his own sake, but for what they get out of the relationship, which puts them in the driver's seat. Whatever else Job does or says, he will not curse God. He refuses to curse God. He's got some bad thoughts about himself, but he's, he will not curse God. Uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, so they play the crucial role of conventional wisdom. The unbending, have-it-all-together theologians who believe their wisdom sufficient to understand the ways of God on earth, and they're happy to tell Job all about it. That God is both almighty and just. Suffering is the result of human sin. Therefore, there is no such thing as undeserved suffering. And Job should own up and confess his hidden sins so that he will be restored. When my son Jesse was five years old, his best friend, who's also five years old, was riding his bicycle on the street in front of their house. And we had just been over at their house the day before. Kids playing together. And a little five-year-old boy, riding along the street, five years old, bicycle. A gentleman, 90 years old, in a car. A little boy swerves just a little bit into the road, and the car ran him down. And he died, five years old. So my son's best friend, family from church. We'd known them, I'd known them for a decade. Um, They had two boys, a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. So the five-year-old is killed. After the funeral, a lady from church took it upon herself to speak to the mother And made a comment on the lines of, um, we'll be praying for you to, so you can help identify what sin there is in your life. Because the death of the child was clearly the result of the sin of the parents. It took everything in me not to smack that lady. I, I, I put my body between the two women and um, it was... It was soul-crushing. It's straight out, of, straight out of Job. That's what I felt like. It was just a complete misunderstanding. Um, thinking that there's no such thing as undeserved suffering. So if there is suffering, it's something you've done. So if something bad goes wrong in your life, if you get sick, if you can't pay a bill, whatever, whatever happens to you or your family, it's because, because there's either a lack of faith or sin. That's the misunderstanding within Job. There's a whole lot of stuff in this world that will happen because we live in a fallen world. And it will happen without explanation and without our sin. Yeah, do we sin? Yes. Are there consequences of sin? Yes. I'm not, We're not off the hook, okay? There's still that part of life. But it doesn't mean that everything bad that happens to us as followers of God is because we're out of line with God. It could be, but not everything is. And that, that's the result of uh, God speaking up later. Elihu plays the role of the overconfidence of youth. I, I picture him as this teenage boy. He's, you know, he, he thinks they really are wiser than the elders. At the same time, ironically, he does in fact have an additional point to make that the other three do not. That beyond Job's obviously deserve punishment, there's a humbling value to such punishment that Job ought to be willing to accept. So in that point, score. That's a good point, that, 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 that there's a humbling value to punishment. If I'm going through something, uh, m- may I be humbled by it and learn by it about myself, about life, about the world, about how cruddy the world can be. OK, so there, there's that value. Job plays the central human role. For him, it's all a, fr- a frustrating enigma. It's a mystery, and he doesn't know. He really doesn't know. He believes that, all, that his calamities ultimately come from God, yet there's no clear cause and effect. So he, he doesn't see the correlation. That's also his problem, since at the issue for him is his integrity, recognized by God in the opening narrative. He is thus both the innocent sufferer and the one for whom the easy answers do not work anymore. So you suffer a calamity. Did that calamity befall you because you did something wrong? Because you're a sinner, because you didn't have faith and trust, was this something you did, something you you believed or didn't believe? So I sit before you, I've been wearing glasses since I was five years old. I plucked an eyeball out when I was two, ripped it right out of my head, gross as all get out. I was sitting in a high chair that used to have the piece of wire and the little spinning things on the wire, and I somehow managed to get the wire loose. Poked it here. When it hurt, I pulled it out, and it pulled off the eyelid and removed the eyeball. Now, was that an act of sin, or was that an act of a child being a child? Okay, I'm blind in my right eye. Okay, does that gross you? Are you grossed out, Faith? Is it just okay? Now, <laughs> as I grew older, I heard, I heard the story told several ways. Okay, I was two. I don't remember the event. I do not remember the event. I, I heard one variation on the story that it was my sister, who is two years older than me, who actually did the deed, um, and therefore she was responsible. So, is my blindness in my right eye because of the sin of my sister? or because kids do stupid things. You know what? I've prayed, I've had people lay hands on me, anoint me with oil, that I would get my eyesight back. Still hasn't come back. Guess what? I have made it all of these years. I have never caused an automobile accident in my life, but I have no depth perception. No depth perception whatsoever. Absolutely. I am fully aware. I am totally self-conscious about movements around me. You see, my world looks to me, I think, the way television looks to you. You look at the TV screen, and you can tell depth in the screen by shadow and size. And so everything to me is shadow and size. Without size comparison and shadow, I'm lost. So all that to say... We can live with suffering. We can live with the consequences of calamity and recognize I don't have a clear reason. I don't know why this has happened. I could have grown up with two brothers. I lost two brothers. But I did not get to grow up with them. They both died before before I got to know them. Babies. So why? Man. I'll ask that one day. I I don't blame my parents. They, I think, blame themselves. But as humans, we wrestle with trying to understand calamity and and some people feel better if they can identify a reason to something. But, But sometimes in this reality, we probably won't get a reason from anything.